0: And welcome back as we trudge through into our second hour of The Seth and Show. I resent that, Lou. This isn't trudging. <laughs> March merrily along, then, as we do. Uh, we are spending the day talking about the withdrawal from Afghanistan, uh, why the nation-building project there failed, what it means for American involvement in the world at large. Many of you have also joined the conversation as well. Uh, any of you can. at 602-508-0960. For now, though, we have Doug from Maricopa, who wants to respond to the cause of the collapse. Doug, you are on the air.
1: How are you doing, sir? It's always good to hear you guys. Oh, thank thank great you. to be Very here, Doug. Much, Doug. <laughs> yep. And always enjoy having you guys on. Listen, I, I don't agree with anything that you and Rob were saying earlier. I think his assessment was pretty pretty close and spot on. Uh, tribalism versus nationalism, me uh, viewing nationalism as a higher form of uh, organization to group humanity and civilization. But I think there's something in addition that has to be noted that I would like to add to it. And that is that um, basically it was very chaotic it wasn't a it very well might be just that we can't nation build with in Afghanistan I don't I actually kind of have to believe that but what we did is precipitate the collapse by 80% of it's our fault in that uh, the Afghans did have an air force but their air force was supplied by U.S. military subcontractors they were maintained by U.S. military subcontractors those subcontractors were pulled. They had no way to do maintenance on their air force, no way to fuel, no way to uh, – they, they were short ammunition. We pulled out. Uh, it, we pulled out so badly that we left a half a trillion dollars' worth of, a, of ammunition around the country. Literally, in, in any organization – and you guys know this probably far better than I, in any organization – How you train and educate and create this corporate culture or military culture, it goes a long way to what the effectiveness and how this uh, uh, organization can function under certain duress. We trained this military, the Afghan military, to coordinate with air support. It was trained for U.S. military air support. And A, we weren't paying them. We weren't making sure they were paid. Those poor guys, fifty thousand of them, lost their lives, half fed, half paid, no ammo. We pulled, we didn't make sure they had the ammo. And then, bright boys that we are, the bu- bright bureaucrats we are, we pull the airport that we trained them to operate in. So we almost doom the collapse, and then we stand back and blame the Afghans. I think it's, a, I think it's appalling.
0: Doug, I, I think that there's a lot that's correct in what you're saying here. And and your, your thoughts parallel mine very much on, on this point. Which, of course, is why I think you're correct. But go ahead. You know, it, it, it does happen to help that way. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that one of the, the, the really big conclusions that you have to make looking at this is that we really were the architects of our own demise here with how we organized the Afghan military and how we we expected it to – sustain itself. And, and frankly, now, now that a lot of these details are coming out, I can't imagine how any serious person at the Pentagon oh. at all had any real thought that this might work. Because like you pointed out, we are, you know, we were paying the salaries of, you know, most of the Afghan army, we were coordinating all of their air support and their logistic profiles. Rather than building them a military that they could sustain indigenously, one with the capacity and the command and control architecture to be able to supply itself, arm itself, and fulfill its own security objectives like it might be expected to do once the Americans leave, we gave them instead this kind of hybridized creature that could only survive when integrated with our own forces but yes. then, you know, we we expect something different to happen when we leave and it it yes. really makes very little sense to
1: me. Oh, I I agree with you 110%. That was my point. We built the culture. We trained them to operate under certain circumstances. The circumstances were closely integrated with our doing uh of our air support and supply and technology and that's that's terrible because as soon as we pulled out the rug from underneath them, and then we go, what's wrong with them? You know, anybody that trains an organization would go, that's just, you know, self-sabotage. Um, I would like to say, back off as a quick, um, quick thing, I personally like to think that I'm tired of us being the world's policemen, but I do not think that the world gives us a choice. That is to say, we can choose to withdraw but that doesn't mean the world will let us. Right. If you, if you, you know, if China is going to have a big say in this, Russia is going to have a big say. Tehran, all of the, you know, all of these. We, Hitler killed 15 million people roughly. The the biggest butcher that everybody's afraid of. Stalin killed twice as many people as Hitler. You put Hitler and Stalin together, you do not come close to the amount of mass murder that the communist Chinese has done. The world's fastest and largest military buildup that is occurring today in China, and their target is the United States. And so we can choose to do anything, but they very well might not let us do it.
0: I think it's been put in military circles uh, uh, the following way. I believe it's something along the lines of the enemy gets a vote, too. No matter what we plan, they get input on what the reality ends up being.
2: Yes, sir. And in this instance, we have uh, a current president who doesn't really understand the chessboard at all. It reminds me of what happened when Barack Obama became the commander in chief, selected Hillary Clinton, to be the secretary of state. And we have been talking about how what uh, has happened now in Afghanistan under Joe Biden's watch uh, really reflects back on the fall of Saigon or the fall of Tehran. And I think uh, it's really reflective of an, uh, an event that occurred much more recently. And that was when Hillary Clinton hit the reset button with respect to Russia and pretended that... Uh, Vladimir Putin was not the kind of person he is. It was not Donald Trump that engaged in crazy behavior with Vladimir. It was Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton believing yeah. that, hitting that hitting that reset butt would suddenly make Russia our be- best friend and turn back tens of tens of decades of history where Russia has been nothing but a giant uh, organization seeking to dominate uh, its part of the world. And it continued to do so in 2009 when the reset button was hit. And just as we've now alerted all of our allies and enemies around the world to be watchful that the U.S. is a fickle friend, uh, Hillary Clinton, in hitting that reset, uh, told two of our allies, uh, Kazakhstan and Ukraine, that we were not worthy to our word. We had given those two countries uh, assurances that we would protect them from Russia. We, of course, had the Crimea event with Russia rolling tanks into Crimea, that Kazakhstan, in the same region south of Russia, had done its work to try to protect itself from Russia, and we were supposed to be the second uh, behind that firing line. We've now done the same thing with Afghanistan. We have alerted China, Russia, Tehran, uh, that, uh, Iran, that we are a fickle friend— that we are leaving tens of thousands of people on the ground who got into bed with us and helped to secure uh, the efforts we were making in Afghanistan. And as uh, Winston Churchill uh, famously said of Neville Chamberlain, it equally applies to to, uh, Joe Biden. Quote, you were given the choice between war and dishonor. You chose dishonor and you will have war. I think, and unquote, I think that ultimately is what ends up happening after this withdrawal. Lewis uh, and I disagree a little bit. But, uh, Doug, thank you very much for joining the call, uh, joining the show and calling in. And we've got uh, Sam and Carefree.
3: Hello. Hello, Sam. Hi, Mom. Yeah, I just have, you know, i got to kind of put on my conspiracy hat here. Um, you know, there's lots of people in Washington, D.C. that are very smart. And the one thing about the United States is we are amazing at gathering information. And uh, I just wonder if there are many people in Washington, D.C. that said, "Okay, it's time for Kamala Harris to be president and we've got to get rid of Joe. Uh, Let's kill two birds with one stone.
2: Make him a fool and get rid of him that way?
3: Well, look, I mean, this takeover, you can use the word miraculous. They might as well have just paved the roads with rose petals, you know, changed every intersection light to green, uh, opened the freeways up to 100 miles an hour and said, okay, go. I mean, this just doesn't happen. You know, we we sing all the time, a term we all use, that doesn't happen overnight. Well, that won't happen overnight. Well, Well, this will
2: happen overnight. Uh, Sam, you want to hang on through the break and we'll come back in just a couple of minutes? Yep. We'll talk to you in just a minute. I'm Hugh Hallman. He's Lewis Hallman. We're filling in for Seth Liebson here on the Seth Liebson Show on KKNT 960, The Patriot. We look forward to you joining the the uh, conversation at 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Uh, I am Lewis Hallman, guest
0: hosting for Seth today with my father, Hugh Hallman, uh, as Seth is in California on a uh, long uh, belated vacation. We've been talking with you today about the withdrawal from Afghanistan, the implications uh, for American internationalism, what our allies are thinking of us, and why we failed in Afghanistan. Before the break, uh, we were talking to Sam in Carefree, who was talking about the intelligence failures in Washington. Sam, you're back on the air.
3: Okay, yeah. I just, um, I think this is kind of a shiny object type of a a situation. Everybody's keeping an eye on the shiny object, and there are other things going on. Uh, The collapse was too easy everything was, as I said, the roads were paved and, and the freeways were open for the, for the Taliban to just walk through the country. And I'm just wondering if this was, I know it's, it's a left field thought, but you know, maybe this is the way to get rid of, uh, Joe Biden and uh, install Kalama, Kalama, whatever her name is, Harris <laughs> and, uh, calamity Harris. And, um,
2: Oh, I like that. I might have just, to steal that from you, Sam. I like that, Calamity Harris. That's actually Calamity, pretty good. Yeah, Calamity I like
3: that. <laughs> Calamity Jane. But the point is, is that it was everything's too easy. Everything's too simple. Everything is is uh, whoops. Oh, you know we have. Listen, they have more data on me than than I could ever imagine. Just from using my cell phone and all this, they've got databases upon databases. And you two, being data analysts, you know this. You're telling me that nobody had a clue what was going to happen, that's that's impossible. I don't believe it. And uh, there's something else going on. I, I just have a feeling that there's, a, there's something else going on under the undercurrent where it's the same thing with Benghazi. There was more to Benghazi that met the eye. I think there's much more to this situation that meets the eye.
2: Well, certainly as time uh, – Sam, thank you for the call. As time rolls out, we're going to see over uh, this time – what happens after the uh, the next few days? We've got uh, thousands of people on the ground who are U.S. citizens and contractors and others, and the issue we face is now how to get them out. We've also got tens of thousands of people who relied on the United States and got in bed with us as part of this project. And now their lives are at risk. Uh, We certainly know that the Taliban is uh, saying the right things to the international community as if they care, that, for example, they're going to provide safe passage for citizens uh, who are in Afghanistan and want to leave. I doubt that very much, because anybody who uh, carried a rifle, anybody who provided information, anybody who was uh, of assistance to the U.S. is likely got a target on their heads, much in the same way Sam was just talking about data being collected. But this data was being collected old school, that members of tribes that these folks might have been working against, members of uh, families and others that they may have been working against on behalf of the United States to try to bring stability into Afghanistan now are uh, targeted for uh, extreme response. That's the kind of thing that uh, I think we should be focusing on. We have now, uh, having destroyed the opportunity to create and continue stability, we now have an obligation to the people who are on the ground to protect them. But Sam, I think you made a greater point that I think Lewis uh, wants to touch on, and that is that we had a, a, an intelligentsia failure in Washington, D.C., about uh, what Afghanistan was really like and uh, what direction we should go with them.
0: That's, that's exactly right. One of the things that's really puzzling to me, as I suspect it was to, to Sam, is how we went from all of these fairly obvious premises, right, that we can't be providing the close air support for the Afghan military and expect it to still function the same way after we leave. It seems like there were a lot of these kinds of very obvious oversights. And I'm sort of left wondering why this was the case and how does something like this happen? And I'm struck that in a large organization, uh, the, the kind that you might see operating at the scale of governments, the people at the top who are directing the organization aren't really, they don't have control over every little piece of it, right? They kind of have to defer their responsibility through the organization and try to get things done and hope that all of their subordinates are, are giving them the facts and that you know political infighting doesn't dominate and that, that everything can actually sort of move forwards. And I think a lot of what's happened with this is that, We kind of had this line in the sand drawn where we need to get out of Afghanistan, and at a certain point, that becomes the dominating factor, where all other considerations go out the window. And so at a certain point, once we've committed to withdrawing from Afghanistan root and branch, everything's got to come out, then all of the old policies that we may have started five or 10 years ago to build the Afghan armed forces then they, they take a lot of very different relevance to them. We integrated close air support into the Afghan military long before we had a timetable for our withdrawal, and the consequences of those earlier decisions are now being manifest now. Um, so okay.
2: in, in terms of that whole point, though, Lou, you've got, as this withdrawal is going forward, uh Clearly, the intelligentsia in Washington, D.C. missed just even this issue of how bad things could be, uh, how how a withdrawal could take place, and how this withdrawal did take place. Part of the challenge was, uh, as uh, uh, some of you don't like him and think of him as a rhino, but as John McCain argued with uh, a prior president— The timeline set out uh, for doing certain actions and making those public, set expectations by your enemies that allow them to plan and setting out of all ironies that September 11th would be the date of final withdrawal for the U.S. troops, believing that that demonstrated a victory date and a victory dance that the U.S. had uh, removed itself from Afghanistan instead of the opposite and seeing the huge failure that we're observing, how could anybody miss the point that the Taliban would understand that they merely needed to wait until September 11th. And if things were f- uh, favorable, could take huge and important strides towards dominating the country before September 11th. And that's exactly what's happened. On top of what I think, and it was really Doug who made the point, that here we trained the Afghan military to behave in a certain way and follow certain protocols based on the U.S. being there. And then with a fairly short order of operations, deciding we weren't going to be there. Uh, All of those things demonstrate a failure to plan uh, for a future and signaling to our enemies exactly what they'd hoped. On top of that, you've got Lewis's great point, which I think you've got to hit again uh, after the break, Lou. How the demographic changes and the population changes in Afghanistan built an opportunity to uh, see the Afghan people ready for an enemy they did not know. That the Taliban taking back over a country of people who thought that the U.S. might be occupying them uh, didn't understand the horrors that they would face shortly thereafter. 80%
0: 80% for- of them were
2: not alive when the Taliban last controlled the country. Uh, well, I think that's not quite true. I think it's closer to oh, 80% sorry. of them were, we're still con- children. Excuse me. Yeah. Uh, but the point is, we'd like to have you join us in the conversation. Tim, we know you're from Peoria and you're holding. We'll bring you in as soon as this break is over. I'm Hugh Holman. He's Lewis Holman. We're filling in for our good friend Seth Liebson on The Seth Liebson Show here on KKNT 960 The Patriot. Please join the show at 602-508-0960. We'll be right
3: back.
0: Welcome back to the
2: Seth Liebson Show. I'm Lewis Holman, guest hosting for Seth Liebson with Hugh Holman. listening to the Orange Blossom Special. Doesn't get any better than that. Thank you, Seth, for that choice.
0: Absolutely. Uh, today we've been talking about the withdrawal from Afghanistan and its consequences for American policy. Uh, we've been delighted to take all of your calls, and I think now it's time to turn to yet another. Tim in Peoria,
2: you are on the air.
4: Hugh, how are you, sir?
2: Doing great. How about yourself?
4: I'm doing well. I will just preface this with saying that I admire your dedication to education, whether it be here in the United States and also abroad. Uh, I could talk to you about uh, for days about that, but in any event... Uh, on to Afghanistan, I'll also preface with, uh, I was in country November 27th of 2001, and I stepped foot out of country in December of 2003.
2: Thank when you we for we that service. Losing, Thank you for that service. I appreciate
4: it. Thank you. When I look at winning and losing, I don't think there's many in our community, the veteran community, that think that we lost, only because when it gets down to the front line, if you will, we are just one small cog in a very big machine, and nine times out of ten, we are achieving the objectives that were put in front of us uh, early on and then moving into, you know, six months ago. I, I see a correlation with regards to what's happened over the last two weeks to what was happening in 2012. As you know, when Barack Obama came into office, he went to the Secretary of Defense and wanted a change in the rules of engagement. Those changes in rules of engagement included, but are not limited to, the use of JAG officers, the Judge Advocate Generals, to make calls on combat operations. So, moving forward, the first, uh, I guess the biggest uh, loss of life under under the change of ROEs happened to six Marines approaching a village. They were ambushed. They could not return fire because they could not ensure uh, that collateral damage would not occur. In any event, I think two or three of them, those Marines were killed in that ambush, and the anger began from there because they started to see what was going to be coming down the highway, if you will, for operations in Afghanistan as Indeed. well as Iraq. Indeed. So when we now fast forward to 2012, I don't think there's any, uh, I don't think anybody can argue with me when we say that we saw an uptick in green on blue attacks starting in 2012. I think there's a direct correlation to the changes of our uh, rules of engagement, as well as the Secretary of Defense under the guidance of Barack Obama to include more indigenous people into the fight. We saw an uptick, in fact, uh, in 2012, we saw approximately 20% 20 increase from two years before. And I think that's huge, because now if you fast forward to what's going on today, you can see why the Afghan army laid down and allow the Taliban to walk in. You're right. It doesn't happen overnight because this is, this I believe, was planned. I think that we got, uh, we got got. I guess it's the, 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 be- the best way I can say it. Now, the average American doesn't understand that, you know, what was left behind. When when Joe Biden got up there yesterday and said, I don't want to be fighting for a country that's unwilling to fight for themselves. I'm not sure there's anybody in America that would disagree with that statement. That being said, they wouldn't disagree and follow it on with having better knowledge as to what's going on. We, have, we left approximately 2,000, maybe 2,500 MRAPs, h uh, Humvees, uh Ford Ranger trucks that were kitted out from contractors, we left. Uh, I, I know on on Bagram, I think there were six or Tim, seven. Tim, if I may, UABs. that's the U.S. total, yes.
0: isn't it? That's not the what we equipped the Afghan military forces themselves with, that which have correct. been subsequently seized as well.
4: That is correct. So everything, everything that was left behind, if you will, not counting the number of just M4 rifles, for example. Now, right now, the Taliban, Afghanistan, if they're, if they're going to be the ruling government, the Taliban have a larger inventory. Of Black Hawk helicopters than 166 other countries. If people want to think about that, now, granted, they gotta fly them, but they have access to it. And I tell you, there's more than enough people coming from Iran with the type of uh, a- uh, aviator training that could probably join the fight, if you will, on that stick on the uh, on the Black Hawk. So that's how many they have. So this is what Americans need to understand. It's not about just getting out. I mean, it was a hasty retreat, if you will, and it looked bad. The optics were bad. Yeah, I don't want to fight for a country that's unwilling to fight for itself. But that being said, we have put ourselves into a situation where the al-Qaeda, or excuse me, the radical Islamic terrorist groups in Syria and Libya and Iraq, as well as Iran, are funded by Iran, will now have a place to go back to and train, and they will train on the FOBs. The forward observation bases that we established, including Bagram Air Force Base, they have an air asset that can bring in all of their fighters, all the Mujahideen that we saw back in the 1980s, and we abandoned them then, and that's what happened when we saw the, the attack on World Trade Center. In...
2: We appreciate that, Tim. We're going to be right back after the break. Here you are rolling the stone on KKNT t 960, the Patriot. I'm Hugh Hallman. I'm joined with uh, the smarter, better-looking, and more talented Lewis Hallman, who happens to be my son. And we are uh, finishing out this hour, chatting about the uh, Afghan withdrawal. And we had a caller just uh, uh, just before the break who made the very cogent point that it is not a failure of our U.S. military that ultimately this has ended badly. It is arguably a failure of our politics that we entered Afghanistan with a certain uh, objective, set of objectives, and having achieved much of that until recently, uh, we then decided that we needed to withdraw our to withdraw our troops. And it has been made a hash of it, a, a terrible mess. And Lewis, I think, has been contemplating um, what one might really actually conclude from the mess that we're seeing.
0: Right. So we... we you know, see a calamity unfolding in Afghanistan. The footage is nightmarish. You know, the, uh, the people uh, clinging to the outsides of planes that are taking off of Kabul airport to then fall to their deaths as they go. It's, it's just devastating stuff to watch. But as, as we look at this and we ask ourselves why it happened or why it was allowed to happen,
2: Military uh, material being left behind, right? Uh, not uh, just what we had, but what the uh, Afghan troops were trained with.
0: Right. So we created this 300,000 man army that was purportedly, you know, the uh, better than what some of our NATO allies have, more numerous, better equipped. And yet, despite all of this, we saw the complete collapse of the uh, Afghan government upon the announcement of our withdrawal. In in really what has been a matter of days, um, and so I am now, you know, I'm stuck asking: Is it that we didn't realize that this could happen? That we were in such a poor position that the Afghans were so overextended without us that they would just collapse, or is it that President Biden and the senior leadership of our of our government analyzed the situation, talked to the experts, reviewed the materials? saw that this collapse was likely and then just didn't care what of those is is the truth is it that we didn't know an unforgivable sin of omission by our military leadership are they that ignorant in the in, in what actually happens in military conflict
2: that they couldn't have seen this coming That we announced months in advance that we were going to be out of Afghanistan by September 11th to demonstrate a political objective of crowing about the fact that uh, President Biden got us out of Afghanistan on September 11th. See what a smart guy he is to celebrate that date with such a great success. Or... Is it possible that these
0: sagacious and wide leaders of ours made the calculations, saw the writing on the wall, and realized that it would be a calamity, then they just lied to our faces and said that
2: it wouldn't be? Do they not know or did they not care? Which is it? Yeah, it does seem to be a more horrific outcome that the president of the United States and his uh, colleagues sat around and understood that this exit would be a disaster And it was more important in the U.S. political domestic uh, debate that uh, his base would prefer to see us leave Afghanistan, even if it's in shambles, and leave tens of thousands of people to risk and likely see death as a result of having been allied with the United States in Afghanistan. That's truly what's happened. I have colleagues of mine who I worked with in Kazakhstan On our work in Kazakhstan to help make sure that Kazakhstan would flourish as a great U.S. ally who have spent time trying to build education programs in Afghanistan, two of them who look not unlike me, uh, palish white skin, uh, red skin almost and red hair who grew beards and otherwise dyed their hair in order to be able to be on the ground in Afghanistan over the last several years working to develop education programs. All of that on the basis that the U.S. government had made a long-term commitment to help build a society there and begin building by planting the seeds of education and uh, making the other kinds of commitments that are necessary to build a society that can ultimately take care of itself. Afghanistan is, I think, as Lewis started this show, been the graveyard of empires that it has been the place where many others have trod in order to create wealth and opportunity and have ultimately lost. So
0: on this point, actually, I think that that actually might just be the problem. It's not the Afghan people in in a very large degree. It's Afghanistan itself. Geographically, Afghanistan is about the most isolated place on earth. It is riven with mountains, which increases the cost of infrastructure maybe 20-fold over flatlands. You can't develop it. You can't tame it. And wherever, we see this globally and cross-culturally, wherever you have mountain societies, backwardness follows.
2: Backwardness as you defined it. But for people who want to live in the mountains and who want to live that kind of lifestyle... The culture that has developed developed as a result of the environment in which it was which it was fostered. And so it should not be a surprise to anyone that trying to create a a society in which agrarians uh, plant corn and uh, sit in their homes and otherwise uh, live a tamed life as uh, agriculturalists, that instead you try to create that sort of a society in a mountainous region that is very difficult to live in, that requires a certain kind of character to begin with, a fairly rugged personality uh, that often requires the connected society that is not what the sort of uh, libertarian, independent, leave-me-alone mindset allows and here we have a society that is primarily built on having self-governance uh, that people generally are left alone, that they can live their lives as they see fit, as long as they don't interfere with the lives of others. And we try to transplant that kind of very sophisticated, very expensive, a luxury good into a society that has very little that has resources, yes, but uh that for thousands of years have faced exactly the same challenges uh, a fairly difficult environment in which to survive that is very expensive in uh in western terms to tame and to people who live within that environment without being tamed. Why is that so hard to understand you know it 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 seems. Perfectly
0: obvious in hindsight, as so many things do, and yet we keep making these same consequences, these same mistakes over and over and over again. Well, the left will
2: criticize me for looking down upon a culture and that I uh, don't believe that the people of Afghanistan could rise to the level of uh, a U.S.-like environment or society, and I would challenge the opposite. That as we sit here today, the left talks about how diverse our society is and that we must respect other cultures. And one of those things we might ought to respect is that some cultures are not currently interested or capable of um, dealing with the kinds of uh, individual investment required to have a very sophisticated self-governing organization. That the United States government and the states within it require an investment by individuals of human capital that is built on thousands of years of development of creating the quote Western society unquote. We don't seem to respect that in this country these days. I happen to respect it a great deal that what Western culture has given us is the ability to have self governance. I'm Hugh Hallman, he's Lewis Hallman. We're going to be back in just a couple of minutes. We look forward to, to having you join the conversation in the 5 o'clock hour. Welcome back you to The
0: Seth Liebson Show, and thank you, as always, for joining us on our second hour as we talk about the withdrawal from Afghanistan today. I want to quickly move to Brian, who's calling from Scottsdale, before we go over to the break and move to the next hour. Brian, you are on the air.
5: Thank you, gentlemen. Always, always a pleasure to
0: listen to you and, and a pleasure to speak to you. Oh, it's a pleasure <laughs> to be seen and spoken to. You-
5: you pretty much took my thunder uh, in the last comments made before the break, but, but I'll reiterate it probably in a simpler go for uh, it way. Is um, it's it's you can't create in people the desire to fight for their freedom and liberty, and that which is why nation building doesn't work. Um, uh, you know, when we walked into Afghanistan, I, I told everybody that this was going to be the outcome. Didn't matter how long it took, this was going to be the outcome. Um, I've heard people tell me that comments that uh, you know well the Chinese are communists because well they they they're just they're not ready for democracy, they're not ready for liberty, they're not ready for freedom, which may be the same case in Afghanistan, but they have no con- I don't think they have the concept of it like we had when our country was was founded.
2: Yeah, I think Brian, that's the the, the point you're making is the the good one that we think that what we have created is easy. And that it's obvious, and I think uh, it is grown in a soil of culture that took a couple of thousand years to develop the again the the british French German experience in Western Europe and uh, in Great Britain was is unique on the planet and it took hundreds of years with the British and the French and the Germans uh, beating one another to death. The British themselves between the uh, should say the English and the Scottish and the Welsh and the Irish beating one another for centuries uh, before they could develop and ultimately create a society, create societies in which uh, the notions of democracy were extant. One of the
0: things also okay. that, that seems to determine uh, sort of a people's predilections for democracy or other forms of governance is the geography in which they live. So again, we have, the, we have Afghanistan being this mountainous and riven area where it's very hard to get any kind of unity or build infrastructure or build institutions. But, uh, and, and you can see this contrast with the U.S., where in the 1800s, in six months, you could go out west, pick up 40 acres of land, and be exporting grain down the, the greater Mississippi Basin to the rest of the world for hard currency. This was unique, and so Brian, you get the last word. Oh,
5: well, I, I just I agree with you hundred percent. I don't think, and I just don't think it's a concept that you can just introduce and say, "Look at how you know," like you say, "Look at how, look at what we've accomplished, look at what we've done," uh, which is one of the reasons why I think we're having such a hard time right now because we're not teaching ourselves this either.
2: Indeed, in we're, fact, you know, that's a great point, uh, Brian. We're going to come back uh, after this break. We're going to pick up our usual stock and trade for COVID. Uh, he's Lewis Holman. I'm Hugh Holman. We're going to discuss uh, the situation with the Delta variant, the virus uh, trajectory, what's been going on. And we are grateful to our friend Seth Liebson for letting us fill in on KKNT 960 The Patriot. This is the Seth Liebson Show. We look forward to you joining the conversation. 602-508-0960. We'll be right back.